We're continuing through our series in the book of Philippians. Let me pray now, and then let's turn to the Lord's Word. Philippians chapter 1, 12 through 18. You can grab your Bible or grab one in front of you if you didn't bring one along. Let me pray. Well, let's turn uh, to Philippians chapter 1. Father, we, we look to you now. You who stand outside of time and creation. You're an eternal God who's chosen to reveal, reveal yourself to us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming into creation, living a life of obedience, dying in our place, rising again in power to give new life. Spirit, we thank you for the work you do to call men and women and children out of darkness into light. The work you've done to ensure that we have your holy scriptures. We have your word. And we turn to your word now and ask that you would guide us, that you would strengthen and comfort us according to your truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The church is under pressure. The church is under pressure from Hindu nationalists in North India. The church is under pressure in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan and in communist-controlled North Korea. The church is under pressure from a gospel of prosperity that's polluting parts of the global south. The church is under pressure in the west to compromise to rapidly secularizing forces in culture. The church in America is under pressure, pressure to pursue pleasure and ease instead of cross-carrying discipleship. The church everywhere is under pressure from our own sin, our own immaturity, and our own division. The church is under pressure from the distractions of this world, the shiny treasures and the brutal hardships of life in a fallen world. The church is under pressure from Satan, who exercises limited authority over this present age. The church is under pressure. The question is, how do we respond to this pressure? I think there are three ways we could respond. We could respond by forsaking Christ and submitting again to the slavery of this present world. We could do that. Or we could surrender to the pressure, whimpering with despair and self-pity over how difficult it is to live life in this world under this pressure. Or we could adopt the Apostle Paul's mindset. You see, it may feel like the pressures facing the church will stunt or disrupt the progress of the gospel in the world. But Paul's not buying that. Not for a minute. The gospel can advance under tremendous pressure. The gospel can advance under any amount of pressure. God desires to save his people from all nations on earth. And God will accomplish that which he desires. There's no pressure external or internal, that will slow or stand against the power of the gospel in the world. And this reality gives birth to a fearless and joyful church. And that's what we see in Philippians 1, verses 12 through 18. Let's begin in verses 12 through 14. The gospel advances despite external pressure, pressure that's on us from the world around us. Look at verse 12 of Philippians chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me 
has really served to advance the gospel. Well, what's happened to Paul that's serving to advance the gospel? What is it exactly? Paul writes the letter to the Philippians chained to a Roman soldier. Imprisoned in a home he pays for out of his own pocket. Well, how did he get here? Why is he in prison to begin with? Well, Paul is arrested in Jerusalem on bogus charges trumped up by the Jewish leaders. And then he's put on a ship and he's sailed toward Rome under arrest. And there's a vicious storm that shipwrecks him on the island of Malta where he's bitten by a poisonous snake and then miraculously healed by God. And he writes this letter from Rome to Philippi in the first century while he's waiting for the Roman emperor's verdict. His options span from release to execution. His own people, the Jews, have rejected him, and Rome may very well kill him. And Paul seems to know that the Philippian church is grieving his imprisonment. By all appearances, the progress of the gospel seems stunted and endangered. Just imagine this Philippian church. Paul is their father in the faith. Paul is the one who proclaimed the gospel first to them. And now Paul is waiting to die for his own proclamation of this gospel. Yet Paul writes with joy. Paul's heart fills with joy and confidence. Why? Because Paul says, despite what's happened to me, the gospel is advancing in the world. And there's two places he sees this. The first, in verse 13, every Roman soldier knows why Paul is in prison. Look at verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The imperial guard or the praetorium guard is probably the guard that belongs to Caesar, the guard that's protecting him. And they all know why he's in prison. Because they take turns being chained to him under house arrest. This is worse than being stuck next to an overtalker on an airplane. They've got their whole shift chained to Paul who won't stop proclaiming Christ. He's sounding off about how Jesus is a greater king than Caesar. How they need to repent of their sins. How they need to trust Christ for salvation. And how the gospel is the most life-altering, eternal reality there is in the world. They have nowhere else to go. They're stuck listening to Paul, and word begins to spread throughout the whole imperial guard. And it's not just that Paul is talking, it's that Paul is still talking. This is the message that got him arrested. This is the message for which he may soon die, and Paul is still proclaiming it. He won't quit. Despite the suffering, the loss of freedom, the impending execution, Paul still proclaims Christ. And the barracks of the Roman soldiers are alive with talk of this peculiar Jewish man who will not shut up about Jesus the Messiah. Now the Holy Spirit invests Paul's imprisonment for gospel returns. Paul's chains and his hardships are not wasted. His hardships are not in vain and neither are yours. God advances the gospel despite any external pressure that comes against you. And that includes the pressure your classmates and teachers and professors may apply against you as they criticize your faith. That pressure in the classroom may feel overwhelming as all eyes in the room turn to you. 
as you hold fast to the truth of God's word and as you proclaim it in that context, you show the world that there's another way to live. There's another way to think about everything that's happening around us. You put a pebble in the shoe in every person in the room. And when they leave that place, they're thinking, that Christian proclaimed something very different. That person stood out and assumed a risk to say something that was so different than everything else I hear. And God will use those moments to reveal gospel truth. They may reject you, but some may also hear you and may believe in that moment or may believe weeks or months or years later when God brings that back to mind. Your suffering for Christ in those moments bears fruit. And as an encouragement, Jesus says in John 16, he promises, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now Paul is confident of the gospel's steady advance in the world, and he's not the only one confident. The second reason he's confident is because not only has the message been, been told throughout the imperial guard, but the church in Rome is growing with greater boldness. The Roman church speaks about Jesus without fear. Look at verse 14. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, <clears throat> are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Don't you expect the, the church in Rome to shrink back at this point? Don't you expect them to keep their heads down? Let's just give this some time and see what the emperor says about Paul. If you speak out now, you may find yourself in prison with him or martyred alongside of him. Now's the time for caution. But that's not what happens in Rome. Most, not all, begin to proclaim the word more confidently. <clears throat> Christians in Rome are bolder. They're more courageous and determined to speak the word of God without fear. Seeing Paul confident under pressure, confident in prison, confident awaiting his own execution is giving birth to confidence in their own hearts. They stand taller. Their resolve is stronger. They're more tenacious. They're ready to assume the same suffering as Paul if it means gospel advancement, and it does. Proclaim Christ fearlessly. Fearlessly. Paul's fearlessness under external pressure gives birth to fearlessness in the hearts of the Roman church. And then Paul, in this letter to Philippi, calls the Philippians to the same kind of fearlessness despite external pressure. Now, I wonder if fearless proclamation or courageous proclamation or bold proclamation makes you a little bit uncomfortable right now. We have examples around us of Christians who are being argumentative and quarrelsome. And that may cause us to want to shrink back a little bit from the bold proclamation of the gospel. But don't avoid fearless proclamation in order to avoid being lumped in with Christians who are struggling to obey 1 Peter chapter 3. Where Peter says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, them meaning those who cause you to suffer. Nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. 
So the defense needs to be made. The bold proclamation needs to be made. Yet Peter says, do it with gentleness and respect. If you're here this morning and not a Christian, you may see the church making bold defenses, but lacking this gentleness and respect. I hope you'll see this morning our aim and our goal is to make the defense because it's the best defense, it's the best hope that the world has ever known. We, we long for that, but we want to do it with gentleness and respect. And we don't always get it right. But to be salt and light <clears throat> requires bold defense. To proclaim the truth, knowing we may incur a cost for it. <clears throat> Jesus spends a lot of real estate in John chapters 14 through 17 preparing the disciples for this. For example, in John 16, <clears throat> I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. <clears throat> Jesus is looking forward to a time when the pressure will increase on his own people. This is not new. This is 2,000 years old. Pressure that causes some who profess faith in Christ to fall away like the seed that's planted among the rocky soil. And when persecution rises on account of the word, that seed falls away. It forsakes Christ. Why? Because the advantage has evaporated. There may be a sense in which there is some cultural or relational advantage for following Christ, but when the persecution rises on account of the word, that advantage evaporates. And Jesus foresees a time when those who call on him, those who profess him, will fall away from him. See, it's not a given that every Roman or every Philippian or every person in Arlington who calls on the name of Christ, who professes Christ, will be fearless. It's not a given. Some in Rome and some in Philippi and some in Arlington may see some of the relational or cultural advantage evaporate and fall away. Now, six people this morning are being baptized. First, last service, and five, this service. <clears throat> Baptism is fearless proclamation. Here's English pastor Lewis Allen. The gospel is war. In the gospel, God declares that he is against the world in its godlessness and will one day destroy all of its disobedience. The gospel message is equally the claim that God has fought and conquered the sin and condemnation of all those who find peace in Jesus Christ. Baptism is a swapping of allegiances. It's a changing of sides so that Christ is our captain. The baptistry is the place where we acknowledge that we died to sin and long to follow in Jesus' footsteps, fighting and suffering and rejoicing in his name. Paul invites the Philippians to partner with him in suffering for the gospel. He calls them to fearlessness, fearless proclamation despite external pressure that's advancing against the gospel. It tells the world Jesus is worth more. It tells the world that we treasure an eternal king we cannot see right now. More than we fear the kings of this earth that we can see right now. 
We're willing to withstand the pressures because doing so reveals the surpassing, surpassing worth of Jesus. The gospel isn't stunted. The gospel doesn't stall out. The gospel advances with power. But this pressure doesn't only come from outside. In verses 15 through 18, we see that the gospel also advances despite internal pressure. See, the church in Rome is not only struggling with external pressure that's put upon them, but internal pressure from within. Christians within the church are making life harder on one another. They struggle with ongoing sin even as they fumble and fall forward proclaiming the gospel. Look at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from good will. Now look at verse 16. The latter, that is those who do it from good will, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. There are two groups of gospel proclaimers in Rome. The first group preach Christ motivated by love and goodwill. There are some Christians, strengthened by Paul's example, who are preaching Christ with boldness. Their fearless preaching comes from hearts filled with love and goodwill. They're selflessly heralding Christ. They have a generous posture toward others. They're seeking the welfare of the people around them. They take bold risks with the gospel because they love the people they're sharing the gospel with. But not all those proclaiming Christ in Rome are doing so from good motives. In verse 17, some preach Christ motivated by selfish ambition, envy, and strife. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Selfish ambition drives this other group of gospel proclaimers. Now make no mistake, ambition is hugely helpful to the gospel. Ambition leads us to dream big dreams for the sake of the gospel. Ambition leads us to put those dreams into practice. But this ambition, this ambition isn't other-centered. It's not ultimately gospel-promoting, not at the motive level, and it is not seeking to exalt Christ. This ambition is after self-glory. This ambition is pathetically self-promoting. It's tragically void of love toward others. And unthinkably, this group of people wants to somehow see Paul's affliction under house arrest increase. And alongside selfish ambition, they feel envious and spiteful. They've got a grudge against Paul and Paul doesn't tell us what the grudge is. Maybe he doesn't know. It could be because of his prominence and his authority. Perhaps they see Paul's impact on the Christians in Rome. There's something of a courage revival happening since he's arrived in Rome. He comes as a prisoner and has churned the church in Rome into bold proclaimers of Christ. This man has suffered across the whole Roman Empire. And God has used him to advance the gospel and now he's captured the attention of Caesar's own imperial guard. But whatever the cause, this group is envious and contentious and argumentative and pugnacious and stirring up strife in Rome. So how does Paul respond to the internal pressure? 
pressure that's coming at him from other Christians who are struggling with immaturity and sin. Read, let's see, verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul responds with rejoicing. Why? He's not dismissing their sin. He's not excusing their sin. But he is saying he's grateful that the gospel is being clearly proclaimed. Despite the internal pressure, despite the pretense, despite the slimy motives and embarrassing behavior, the gospel is advancing. And in that, Paul can and will rejoice. Now, since he's rejoicing, we know something. We know that they're proclaiming a true gospel. This isn't a false gospel. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul writes, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So these Christians, the one that Paul's referring to in chapter 1, no matter how awful their motivations may be, they are proclaiming Christ. And so Paul rejoices. Proclaim Christ joyfully. No matter the external pressure or the internal pressure that's facing the church, Christians are moved to joy. Joy is what should anchor our hearts. Joy should animate our faces. It should flavor our speech and it should empower our behavior. Genuine, deep-seated joy, no matter the circumstances, reveals the treasure we found in the gospel. Remember that two-verse parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 13? He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's the treasure of the gospel. For us to genuinely feel joy in the face of pressure, we have got to believe and be persuaded and convinced that we have the best thing in creation. We already have it. And so we can lose everything else because we've got the joy, the, the pearl of great price. Practically, this means Paul has to die. He has to die to his own desire for comfort, for ease, and for personal safety. This is the main enemy of joy. The vanishing treasures and honors of this life can mean more to us than eternal reward. And when that happens, joy is hard to come by. But if Paul's main goal is comfort, ease, respect, long life, then he cannot be happy enduring intense pressure. But Paul is not most hungry for those things. Paul is hungry for the gospel to advance. This week, our staff and elders had the joy of hosting two Filipino pastors, Franco and Uziel. And they've spent the last week with us. And in preaching meeting this week, Uziel brought up Paul's words to the Ephesian elders as he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem. He knows because of a vision that he's going to be arrested in Jerusalem. And in light of that, he says this to the Ephesian elders. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
That's what he's living for. He wants to advance the gospel. He wants to proclaim the message that Jesus gave him. That's what will give his life value. And if that's your driving purpose, then when these pressures come against you, your joy is unmoved. Because the pressures are only serving to advance the gospel. The internal pressure from immature Christians can't diminish Paul's joy. He's not sanctioning their sin. He's rejoicing that the gospel is advancing. God is working in spite of their sin. And he invites the Philippians to join him. And he invites us to join him as well. Envy, spite, rivalry, and strife are evident in our generation too. They weren't invented by Twitter. They're still with us. Paul is not dismissing those things as unimportant sins. But he's still joyful over gospel advancement. Not a few of you have told me how much you're struggling to love the church in America right now. Some of you feel like the church sold out to the political left. Others feel that the church is sold out to the political right. We're all trying to figure out in this generation how to unify around the gospel. How to faithfully serve Christ in this generation. Where must we pursue single-mindedness? And where can we give one another the freedom to think differently? Michael Emlett wrote a book last year called Saints, Sufferers, and Sinners. He writes that the church is made up with people with multiple identities. We are primarily saints if we are in Christ, but we are also still sinners and still sufferers. The application is that person that you're frustrated by is not just a sinner. They are also a saint redeemed by Christ and you'll spend eternity with them. They're also a person who's suffering to make sense of life in a fallen world. This doesn't mean we ignore or excuse one another's sin or error. It does mean when we lean in to address one another's sin and error, we do so remembering our complex identities. We are saints, we are sinners, and we are sufferers. And that's true of you, and it's true of me. And it should create humility in the church. You see, we rejoice because, like it or not, Jesus has chosen to use the church to get the gospel to the ends of the earth, empowered by the Spirit and the Word. So you may be frustrated with the church, but there is no second option. We are it. Now that doesn't mean that a church will not disqualify itself by forsaking the gospel. It doesn't mean that a professing Christian will not disqualify themselves by forsaking Christ. But it does mean that God's work in the world will be accomplished through the church. And it does us very little good to spend our time frustrated with one another, throwing up our hands exasperated when we are the people whom God has called to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We are not a perfect people, but we are a forgiven people, a company of forgiven ones who are marked out by joy. So look at the external pressure that's facing us. The world rejects and opposes and persecutes us in every nation on earth. And then look at the internal pressure challenging the church as we struggle with immaturity and sin. I want to argue that when we see that pressure, 
It should develop in our hearts a sense of fearlessness and joy. Fearlessness and joy does not come from mental toughness. It does not come from raw courage. It does not come from stubborn resolve. That's the wrong place to find fearlessness and joy. Fearless and joyful proclamation is rooted in the powerful and personal presence of God. God is with us as his people. God is for us. And that makes all the difference. He has guaranteed the work of the church by his spirit through his word. In the days of Abraham, God reassures the, faith, the fe fearful patriarch of his presence. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. In the days of Moses, God sends Moses to tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. Moses is afraid. And God says, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. In the days of Joshua, God commissions his people to go and take the land that God had promised them away from their enemies. The Lord commissioned Joshua, be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. Or in the days of Israel's kings, the Assyrian army surrounds and threatens to destroy God's people. And then that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, there were all dead bodies. Or in the days of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar says, you may worship no one but me. And so the young Hebrew Jew, uh, men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are thrown into a furnace so hot the men who throw them in fall down dead. King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they aren't hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Or in the days of Queen Esther, Haman plots to exterminate all of God's people. And God sovereignly stands up and defends his people. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for the Jew Mordecai. Or in the days of Jesus, Judas has led the temple police to the place where Jesus is praying with his disciples. Jesus boldly identifies himself and then says, whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am he. And if you're seeking me, then let these men go. Or in the days of the early church, the Christians pray for boldness in the face of persecution. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Or in the days of the early church, when Stephen is being stoned for proclaiming Christ boldly, even while the stones are flying, he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Behold, 
I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Church family, God will be with us in this generation as he has been with his people in every generation. And that is the cause of fearlessness and joy. Friend, if you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Christ, I guess the question that comes in my heart is, where do you go for certainty in a time when everything is uncertain? What do you put your hope in? Where's your anchor? Where's your source of security? And do you trust it? Christians turn to places like Psalm 73. The psalmist in the beginning of this chapter looks and sees disobedience throughout the earth. And then in verse 23, says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. You don't make the God your refuge in your own strength. You are able to make God your refuge by trusting in Christ who has opened up the presence of God to you. So if you have not come to faith in Christ, make Christ your refuge this morning. Let him be the steady anchor, the source of eternal hope in your life. The church family, as the pressure builds, know that pressure advances the gospel. So let's proclaim Christ fearlessly and joyfully. Lord Jesus, we look to you alone. You are our source of strength and life and hope and joy. Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you for being present with your people. Not leaving us alone in the world but dwelling with us and in this last age, dwelling inside of us by your spirit, would you strengthen us according to your word, even as we sing together. We pray in Christ's name, amen.